Thank you, everybody. Thank you. It's uh, interesting. I was just asking Joe, when was the last time we gathered? And he told me it was November 2nd. Is that right? November 2nd? And boy, the world looked a lot different back on November 2nd, even after that. And um, boy, I'll be very honest, you know, it was a tough November for me personally. Anyone else have a tougher than expected November? Yeah. Um, long lines, machines going down, you know, frustrations abundant. Yeah, I mean, look, it was, it was interesting. I didn't just interesting, it was super frustrating uh, for a lot of us. And I know that as we continue to gather here, now in this new year, some of you are a little bit demoralized and maybe saying like, man, I'm looking for answers and all that. And I, I spent a lot of time praying and meditating on this uh, in December. And I, I know a lot of you came to our event, America Fest, and thank you for those of you that came. It was terrific. It was our largest event to date. It, the enemy wants us to give up. And part of why we continue to gather and we continue to have this night where we have open question and answer and some great experts is to get out of the house, is to be around people that are like-minded and go through the effort to say, I'm not giving up, I'm going to keep on learning, I'm going to keep on acting, and I'm going to continue to do the right thing even when it's difficult, even when it is harder than it needs to be. And Look, I mean, we, we need to be honest with both ourselves and with each other. Things probably should have gone a lot differently. Is that fair to say? Can I say that? And again, the essence of this gathering is not political, but you could tell a lot from elections, right? You could tell a lot from politics, and you can glean from it, and you can think about it. And I could say this, that so much of the work that you put in was not for, was not for nothing. There was a lot to celebrate and there was a lot to look at. But as we head into this next year, my challenge for all of you and for the church at large is we need to redouble our efforts in 2023. And I know some of you are saying, man, I'm just so exhausted. When are we getting our country back? We've got to fight harder. We've got to organize. We have to continue to educate ourselves on where we've come from, from our biblical tradition and from our history, understand what we're fighting, and also understand it's not all bad that there, and I, I said this the other day, um, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I think it's very interesting because that's usually the best things that I say, right? Which is, I don't think that the world's elites are, they quite understand why the American people keep fighting. I mean, you, look at, you listen to what they said at Davos, the World Economic Forum, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, they don't understand why you love this country so much. They, tr they truly don't. They thought that they could get you to a place of forced and immediate demoralization. And yes, it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be less than thrilled. But what makes our country different and what has made us different is our refusal to surrender and instead say, you know what, maybe it's God's plan for all of us that we didn't get everything that we wanted so that we wouldn't just celebrate endlessly and instead we'd get to work in a time where we really need to pour into our nation. Maybe that's what God is teaching us in this moment. Because the only way the bad guys win is if we give up, period. That's the only way that they win. And so my challenge for you this year, we have some amazing speakers already planned for you. Next month, we have the great Dennis Prager coming, and so make sure you get 
you bring a friend or two as we talk about his rational Bible, one of the great pieces, one of the great accomplishments of Bible commentary in the modern era. So I encourage you to bring your friends to that. But we want to continue to keep this growing, and it's growing by every measure possible. I get people come up to me all the time. They say, Charlie, the gatherings at Freedom Night in America, thanks to Dream City Church and leadership of the Barnett family, it really keeps me going. It makes me want to run for school board. It makes me want to educate my kids around these values. It has opened up my eyes to what's really happening in the country. And for those of you that have never been to one of these gatherings before, since we're in a new year, let me tell you kind of why we do this. We do this for a lot of reasons, and Dream City deserves the credit for their courage and their willingness to host this. One of the reasons we do this is the American church has been silent and cowardly for far too long. And it was very funny. I had a pastor, and I, I struggle with patience. Um, it's not a fruit of the Spirit that comes easy to me, especially on this topic. I had a pastor that emailed me, and he said... Uh, and he was sweet about it, and I, I took an hour to respond. Really, that was smart. Um, should have taken two hours. But he, um, he said, Charlie, I'm really undecided after the last couple years of whether or not I should speak out on current events. I said, okay, let me get this straight. So after the last year of the lockdowns of churches, strip clubs and marijuana dispensaries and liquor stores remain open, the forced vaccinations, the masks on our kids, the most suicidal generation and alcohol-addicted and drug-addicted generation in history. Our border remains completely and totally wide open. They're raiding the homes of pro-life leaders. You're still undecided after that, after a couple years? Like, what more information do you need exactly to want to speak out? And so I, I worded it a little bit nicer than that. But see, that's, that's your word, nice, Jeff. There you go. Um, and basically he said, and he was said, I'm undecided of whether or not it's worth doing it. That's what he was undecided about. And that even made me more angry. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You're undecided about whether it's the right time to do the right thing? This is a pastor of a pretty major church. And I called him and we talked, and I don't, I don't know how persuasive I was. But that shouldn't even be a question if you're a pastor in America. If you're still undecided at this point, and that really goes and it distills down. We have, we, have a, we have a really fun announcement. I don't know if you've read Eric Metaxas' new book, Letter to the American Church. It's fabulous. He was with us, I think, a year and a half ago. We are actually going to help produce the film version of Letter to the American Church to hopefully be, sc be screened at churches all across the country. Because, look, the church is the backbone of all of this. And I get, I first want to just encourage the people that are watching that are not part of the church world that are fighting for liberty because generally there are more secular people than Christians fighting for liberty and freedom in the political sphere right now. So that's simultaneously something that deserves their encouragement, but boy, the American church needs to look inwardly. And how many times have you heard, they're like, well, well you know, we, we, we don't do the political thing around here. And I, I, I always, and we're gonna talk about that with Jeff, is that, that means you don't do the right or wrong thing around here, you don't do the moral thing around here. Again, we're not asking you to be political, we're asking you to be biblical. We're asking you to be focused on truth with courage. And the enemy would love nothing more for the American church to remain silent and complicit and to be kind of in a position of constantly saying, we don't do that around here. Tyranny and totalitarianism will continue to grow if the American church does not stand. But honestly, 
part of why we're doing this is not just to talk the game, but also to show that the church can host conversations like this, that pastors can be empowered, that you can have an open question and answer about this. How many different ministries do most churches have? You've got a men's ministry, you've got a women's ministry, a financial counseling ministry, prison ministry, parking cars ministry. You've got every type of ministry imaginable, right? And yet you don't have a ministry that says, you know what, we're going to talk about what's happening in the news cycle and what the Word of God has to say about that. And here, for any pastor that's watching that's un not convinced, if you are not offering biblical clarity to your congregation about how to think about the news of today, they'll find it from a secular source. We don't do that around here. Okay, then they're going to go to some secular, non-biblical source to go look at what's happening in the news. It's one of the reasons why I love Jack Hibbs. I know you guys love Jack Hibbs too, and he was here last year. It's why I love Steve Smotherman who I think is going to be at the upcoming conference, right? It's what's happening in the news, what does the Bible have to say about it? In fact, the Bible's ahead of the news if you really read the Bible. It seems to be, actually knows what's going to happen next. And so we're in, I know, a very perilous time, but let me tell you this, and this is the attitude I want all of you to have, because I had somebody the other day stop me and goes to this, and I'm not going to say who it is, they say, I go to Freedom Night, and I'm really demoralized and depressed. I said, that was okay for maybe a week. I was there with you. But we as Christians are not allowed to be in a permanent state of despair, period. In fact, we should be the opposite. We should be hopeful. We should be joyful. We should be solution-oriented. We should be talking about how things can be better and get better. I do not believe that America will benefit from angry Christians or from demoralized Christians. Now, trust me, I'm angry a lot. That's, that's hopefully little moments of time. The point is, is your attitude joyful? Is your attitude hopeful? And that's what we need to really make an intentional effort to do in 2023. We need to ask ourselves questions every time we gather. Are we increasing our ranks? Are we picking the necessary fights? Are we standing with courage? Are we learning something new every single day about the Bible, about the Word of God? Are we helping people that need help by speaking the truth to them? Are we educating a person that might not yet see what's really happening around them? If we do that, then we're going to see that fruit not just in 2024, but in 25 and 26 and 27 28 and 29. That fruit will continue to happen. And remember, for those of you that might have been so demoralized, and I'm right there with you, Sometimes those disappointing results can be lagging indicators of fights we did not have five or six or eight or ten years ago. In some ways, you're sowing the future of the fruit that you want to see. And regardless of all of that, the outcome should not determine your effort. Let me say that again. The outcome should not determine your effort. Instead, you should be obedient to the truth obedient to God, regardless of whether or not you get the outcome that you desire. Obedience is more important because we are not here playing the gambling odds at Las Vegas. That's not, because I get these emails, Charlie, I'm done, I'm never getting involved, I'm, I just, everything's falling apart, and by the way, God bless you. Like, what? That's so strange. It's like, you obviously believe in a God who loves you. Your obedience to a God that loves you should continue regardless of whether or not things do not go the way you want them to go. And I can't think of a better guest to kick us off than the person we have tonight. Dr. Jeff Myers is the author of a fabulous book, 
It's the truth changes everything, or truth changes everything. He's going to do a book signing afterwards in the lobby. I had him on my show for a full hour today. He is incredibly learned, brilliant and bright, understands the complexity of this, but we're really going to explore one topic of the book that I think is really important, which is what happens to a society, a civilization, a generation, a people, a church, a community, a corporation, a company, if truth is not the ultimate value. This is more than an intellectual exercise. This is good versus evil, and we're gonna explore that tonight. Join me in welcoming the first guest of 2023, Dr. Jeff Myers. Hey, Charlie. Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. You know, there's a great Seinfeld episode about that. Still getting Happy New Year in February. That's, uh, that's it something. It is February, isn't it? Huh? It is February. Yeah, it is. I guess so. It's February 1st. Oh, so, uh, Dr. Myers, welcome. Thank you. And I love this church. They're so close to me and close to Turning Point USA. They are a rarity. Do you have any initial comments on how churches need to stand right now before we get into your book? Only about 20% of the people who even go to church have a biblical worldview. It's hard to imagine, but if you, if you see in any given church a row of 10 people, two of them are there to figure out what God has to say and apply it to their life. The other eight are asking, well, does the pastor's story inspire me? Does his truth somehow match up with my truth? And as long as people who ought to know better are not seeking the truth, I can see why it's very discouraging for a lot of pastors. Uh, Two-thirds two of people who go to church, by the way, said they want their pastor to talk on current issues. Now, when pastors were asked, do you address current issues from the pulpit? Or they, they, said, they asked the question very cleverly. They said, do you think the Bible speaks to current issues? Yes. 90% of them said yes. Then they asked, one by one, which of these have you addressed from the pulpit? Only 10% of them had ever addressed any of the issues. So there's this big gap right now. And part of the gap is the meanness factor. Uh, basically, in a, the poll, now Summit Ministries is not a polling company. I'll tell a little bit about what we do. But we poll uh, in the United States of America every month because we want to keep our finger on the pulse of where people are. 5 to 8% of the people in this country are jerks. That's... They're jerks. They hate you. They hate everything you stand for. They think that as a Christian, you should not have the right to speak out. They, they say, how do you solve conflicts with people? And their answer is, I cut them out of my life. I mean, that's, it's that kind of a thing, 5 to 8% of the people. The rest of the people are so afraid of that, those yeah, that's right. that they stay quiet it's one of the rare situations I've seen in my lifetime where a tiny, tiny little tail can wag the whole dog because we're so afraid of offending. And so that, that segues to your, your book, Truth Changes Everything. If you have the truth and you don't speak the truth, then what good is actually having the truth? Yeah, you can't, well, part of the problem is you can't really say that you have the truth if it's not a truth that you're willing to speak. You know, uh, 
I was recently reading a book by a, a very famous pers a political person from another country, and in the book he talked about the arc of history. You know, Martin Luther King said, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. And his point was, it does not automatically bend toward justice. People have to stand for justice. They have to know what justice is, and they have to actually say so, which means that you court opposition. There are pe people who don't like you. Charlie, you, you've got to be the king of nasty, getting nasty grams in the email, right? I, I mean, I don't know anybody else who gets as many. I get them from my fans. <laughs> you have a rough crowd. Uh, They're really intense, I got to tell you. I, I, I love you, all of you. I, I, I spoke at one of the events, and it was, it was hysterical because they were, they were, it was awesome. Yeah. There were thousands of them there. And then I said, I'm offering some breakout sessions, some workshops. They packed out the breakout sessions. They just wanted to learn so much. But uh, it was hours and hours and hours of conversation. You know what, the cur having curious people, even if you don't agree, isn't that a better world? Of course, and that, that actually ties into one of the themes I want to address about your book, which is one of the reasons why curiosity is dying, or at least entertaining other opinions is dying, is that the very same people who say that there is no absolute truth, in reality are willing to use a lot of power to shut you up from saying the truth. Is that it's inherently tyrannical, this idea that there is no truth. In fact, all they believe is in power dynamics at its, at its core. I think you're right, and, and, and my opinion on that doesn't really matter. Uh, Peter M. Sorokin, who was the greatest sociologist, I think, in the history of America, the founder, I believe, of the sociology department, both the University of Minnesota and at Harvard University. He did a study of the sociology of all civilizations, and that was one of his dominant conclusions. In the absence of a belief in God, in the absence of moral absolutes, in the absence of those convictions, the only binding imperative left is power and physical force. So if you give up the idea of truth, then what you're, what you're left with, uh, as, as you mentioned before, is, is the Soviet Union. Yeah, so, but let's, let's play devil's advocate. Some people in the audience, I'm sure, hear this all the time from, you know, a young 19-year-old that believes they know everything. They say, but you're so judgy, and that's the, that's the scientific term, by the way, judgy. <laughs> it's, cl it's a clinical term, judgy. And I have my truth, and you might have your truth, and we all have our own truth, so leave me alone. Obviously, unless you misgender somebody, then I'll put you in prison, but we should all leave each other. We'll get to that later. But who are you to say that your truth is greater than my truth? This person might say that I have won the oppression Olympics because I'm a you know, a lesbian in a wheelchair or whatever this, you know, wins the points that way. Therefore, I have my own truth. You think I'm kidding, but this is actually one of the, this is one of the arguments that is dominating our society, that if you're in a, an oppressed group, you somehow have access to a truth claim that white cisgendered males do not. Well, there was a lot there. <laughs> How about this? What is your opinion on judgy? <laughs> you know, the, the funny thing, it, this is, it, to me it's funny because as a philosopher, weird things are funny. We're really nerdy about that. But when someone says there is no truth, they've just proclaimed the existence of a truth. That there is no truth. 
I had this debate with a professor when I was in college. He said, there are no absolute truths. And I asked him, are you sure? And he said, yes. <laughs> so I leaned in, I said, are you absolutely sure? And he said, oh, you're a very clever young man. If I say there are no absolutes, that's an absolute statement. He said, all right, I'll revise my remarks. There is one absolute, which is this. There are no absolutes. And I just, I just said, well, okay, let's say that there's one absolute. Is it possible that there are two? And he said, no. And I just raised my hand. Are you sure? There's no, there's no philosophical basis. Somebody, somebody says, you're judgmental. Then the response to them, because if, if there's no truth, if we each have our own truth, then words don't have any meaning, right? So if somebody says, well, you're being judgmental, just say to them, what I hear you saying is that you are being judgmental. Because if there's no such thing as judgment, you wouldn't even point it out. In fact, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't have any kind of a conversation at all because it'd be like two people speaking two different languages. They cannot communicate with one another. And the societal breakdown happens on three levels. It happens on a personal level, or maybe we'd call it intrapersonal level. The, you know, M. Scott Peck in the 1970s agreed with a lot of the guy, what the guy said, disagreed with a lot, but he was very observant. He said, you cannot overcome mental illness unless you grapple with reality as it actually is. So we have these mental health crises. You mentioned this. 75% of young adults say they do not have a sense of purpose in life. 53% say they regularly struggle with anxiety and depression. We have the highest level of young adults today who don't even know what gender they are. Correct. And all of these things show us that you've got a generation that is failing to grapple with the reality as it actually exists. The second part is, yeah, the second part is even harder. How does somebody who can't grapple with reality relate to somebody else who can't grapple with reality? So it, what psychologists call attunement, our ability to just relate to one another, you cannot have that unless you have a shared understanding of reality. Then people who cannot relate to one another in interpersonal situations can't form a good society. The biggest issues with the Soviet Union were not the fact that they drove tanks through the streets and shot people, it's that people turned in their neighbors they actually ended up turning, uh, the, the government put such pressure on them that they turned on one another and they ruined their own country. It wasn't just the bullets. And in some ways, we're actually living through the experiment of what happens. And it's going to be a very brutal experiment. And this is where I'm trying to tell parents, especially that have teenagers, you got to be really careful about the types of ideas and language you allow in those formative years because most parents have no idea the philosophical differences that kids are basically lacing their language with. Sometimes I don't even know because they're on social media so much, which is if a 12 or 13 year old is protesting that, well, just live and let live and you can kind of determine your own life, that is a recipe for misery. It is. You have, the, again, I will repeat it. We are seeing the, the number, there's a lot of statistics you can make up. Tragically, you can't really make up suicide numbers. You just can't, okay? And so that number is the highest it's ever been in recorded history. We are the wealthiest country, we are the strongest country, and we have the most per capita people ever that want to kill themselves under the age of 25. It's a leading cause of death. 
right? I know, I know three people that tragically killed themselves since Christmas. I'm sure you guys know several. This, this should be, we should be having massive committee hearings on this in Congress. We should be having, you know, just, this should be the number one focus of why is it a country that has more of everything, has the most of your ambitious and kids that want to flourish, that don't want to be here anymore. And there's answers, I think, I think there's biochemical answer to this. I think the food doesn't help. I think there's all sorts of different things, but it, the, the, the underlying all of, of all of it is if you're 17 years old and you've been told that you have to come up with your own truth and that you're the most important person in the world and everything around you is racist and bigoted and misogynistic and awful and evil, then it does eventually lead to the question of, well, then why even exist? Yeah. At, at Summit Ministries, our main focus is equipping and supporting the rising generation to embrace God's truth and champion a biblical worldview. The core truth that has been lost and needs to be recovered in our time is that every human being has value because they bear the image of God, no matter their size, no matter their level of development. Young adults who've never been able to grasp that or internalize it, or they see it as, as just a, oh, well, that's, you know, that's speaking of the group. Uh, don't really see that. When, when students come to Summit Ministries, I, I have a whole, I've spent two hours with them on what a Christian worldview is. Not just what the Bible says, but how the Bible applies to everything else. It's like C.S. Lewis said, I, I, I believe that the sun has risen not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So I, I spend two hours with them, and when we get to the place in Genesis chapter 1, you only have to read, you only have to open the Bible to the first book. And if you only ever read one thing and you read the first chapter, you will realize that every human being was made in God's image. And it's, so I just, I, I have them stop, and I just say, I want you to hear what I'm saying right now. I'm not saying y'all are made in God's image. I'm not saying because I, I spent my career in Tennessee, so I can say this. I'm not saying that all y'all bear God's image. I'm saying that you personally bear God's image. And I want you to get that into your heart. I've seen so many young adults come back from the brink when they get in their heart that God made them that way on purpose. They're not in the wrong body. They're not in the wrong family. They're not even in the wrong country. They're where God has designed them to be. And that, that right there is the most profound truth claim that the entire civilization is on. So when a pastor says to me, well, I don't want to be political, I say, well, then you don't believe Genesis 126 and 127. And they say, what do you mean? I say, either you believe that human beings are image bearers or you don't. And so, of course, I believe it. I say, okay, then you do believe that then the political environment should respect that and human life matters and a million abortions a year is evil and cruel and wrong. And you do believe that a government should then recognize that every single person has a soul and they're not just a random accident of millions of years of Darwin Darwinian evolution. That's a political claim. And the church, what they end up, what these pastors end up clumsily saying is they say, well, I can't really see one party better than the other. At this point, they're so morally lost. I don't believe the church has really thought deeply about Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Immediately, the, the, your existence has purpose. If Genesis 1-1 is true, every other miracle in the rest of the Bible can happen. You know, people say, oh, you really believe all these other miracles? I say the greatest miracle, even more than the resurrection, is Genesis 1-1. It's existence, the fact that God can just speak the world into existence. 
that's, that's the, it starts with the great miracle. I mean, Jonah and the whale pales in comparison to designing DNA. I mean, that's, that's like small stuff. And so what I'm getting at, though, is that the idea that Genesis 126 and 127, the Soviet Union did not believe that. Mao's China did not believe that. Hitler certainly did not believe that. The American left does not believe that. That alone, if we isolate Genesis 126 and 127, which answers the question, what is a human being? Why are you here? And is there anything special about you? All of a sudden, that is incredibly instructive to how we govern ourselves. Yeah, I, I think you're right. The destruction, the level of destruction is, all, is so unreal that we have a hard time even calculating it. Uh, you, if you look back at the 20th century, R.J. Rummel was a professor who had the grim task of trying to calculate how many people were killed under communism. And, and he finally concluded it's somewhere between 150 and 360 million people who died at the hands of their own governments in the 20th century alone. To put that in perspective, he said that's more than all other centuries of human existence put together. What was the common thread of those societies? There is no God. Therefore, no human being has inherent value. It's all about the state. Can I tell you, I want to tell a story before we kind of wrap up that part of the discussion because in the book, uh, I have a chapter on, so it's how Jesus' followers changed everything. They changed everything in science and art, and one of the chapters is politics. The other day, I was speaking to a group of teachers, and I said, okay, next we're going to talk about politics. They all groaned. They're like, oh, we're so tired of talking about politics. And I said, do you realize the fact that we can have this discussion is the legacy of Jesus' followers? So I took him back and I, I told the story of Samuel Rutherford. He was a Scottish pastor. He lived during the time of Charles II. So 30 seconds on British history. Charles I got his head cut off. Uh, there was the, in this revolution. Then Charles II came back. So he's very jealous of his power, really wary that someone might, you know, might uh, rebel. And this little pastor in, in Scotland wrote a book, two words, the title's two words, and it's only six letters, Lex Rex. Lex Rex, which is Latin for law is king. The king is not the law, the law is the king. Now the subtitle is 136 words, so I won't give that to you, but in the book he says, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you realize the king is indeed, as he claims, the heir of Adam. And so are all the rest of us. Right. Ooh, so King Charles, he was mad. I mean, he sent troops. Go up there, get Samuel Rutherford, bring him back to Parliament. We're going to give him a fair trial and then hang him. <laughs> that was his plan. Samuel Rutherford, rather rudely, died before the soldiers arrived. His final words were, I have been summoned by a higher authority. Which is a very Scottish way of saying, you know where you can put it. Right. And uh, it, it was, but the, but the horse was out of the barn. No longer could the king say he has this divine right. The people have it. And what did the founders of the United States do? They took Rutherford, they took John Locke, and they took a handful of others, Hugo Grotius and some others. And they said, the government does not give you your rights. At best, the government secures the rights that are given to you by God. Genesis 1-1, we are all, why we are here. Genesis 1-26, 1-27, what are you as a human being? Genesis 5, 
human equality. And here are the sons of Noah. We are all from the same lineage. Therefore, there is no hierarchical, there is no claim to a throne over others. The founders went specifically to Genesis 5, and they said, wait a second, this is the best argument for human equality we could ever have. Genesis 11 had to deal with power. God will not honor those that try to do big, majestic, and temporal things not in his name. Let me ask a question, though. I'm sure all of you have heard before, religion has killed so many people, and all of this. Raise your hand if you've heard this. They teach it in our schools. What you just said is 160 to 300 million people, more than the entire population before the 1900s. None of that was, quote-unquote, done in the name of God. Secular atheism has killed more people than any other ism in the history of humanity, period. It's not even close. And yet, if you send your kid to a government school, they'll say it's Christianity and the Crusades and the Inquisition. By the way, completely mistaught and misunderstood and misrepresented, but there is a definitely a propaganda campaign there. So let's talk about this and we'll do some questions. Do you have a thought yeah. on that? Oh, no, I, I completely agree. It, it, in fact, the evidence of it is, is so overwhelming uh, that it, there's no longer any question about this. There, I did write about this in a book called Understanding the Faith, where I talked about some of the some of the claims, because I had questions. Well, what about this? What about that? Isn't the God of the Old Testament, you know, pro-slavery, anti-woman, and anti-gay? You know, all of these kinds of questions. So I wrote about this, and it was kind of like a seminary education to write through it. But the claims against Christians have always been exaggerated. And, and, and what's, what's even more important to me is that Jesus, not everybody who claims the name of Jesus actually does the right thing. Have you noticed this? Uh, but, but there are people who believed not only that Jesus is the Savior, but that Jesus is the truth. They, they brought those claims together. And those were the ones who changed everything in, in the course of history. I mean, Rodney Stark, the historian, he was asked, well, you know, science came out through the Enlightenment, right? When people rejected God, science grew. So he just went back and looked at the founders of modern science. He said there are 52 individuals whose discoveries and inventions constitute the foundation of modern science. How many of them were atheists? One. One. Did you know that? Have you ever heard that before? Because I certainly hadn't. I went from a bachelor's degree to a master's degree to a doctoral degree. No one ever told me that. So you, you have to find good sources to be able to, to dig into this. And that's, that's one of the things we're trying to do Summit Ministries. So let, let's close with this, then we'll do some questions. Uh, I think this is really applicable to some of the younger attendees and younger audience. What is the truth then? You say the truth, truth changes everything. What is it? Yeah. Truth is what really is. That there is a reality. This is how Jesus phrased it in John 8, 32. If you follow my teachings, you will know the truth and the truth will set you, what? Free. The truth sets you free. Think, think of all the things we need to be set free from in our time. People need to be set free from addiction. People need to be set free from feeling that their lives don't matter. People need to be set free from the idea that I just sit back and the government's going to do all the work. They will take care of me. There are a lot of things that we need to be set free from. But that word for truth is a Greek word, aletheia. It means reality. Jesus wasn't saying, if you follow my teachings, then you will know your truth. He wasn't saying, if you follow my teachings, then you'll, you'll feel better about yourself. He was saying, you'll know reality. And some of you... I can see there are a lot of people in the audience who are about my age. 
Uh, you learn a lot about reality that's not very pretty as you go through your life. And you realize, man, there's a lot of hard stuff about reality. But the truth is you would rather know that it's hard and know that you have a savior who is a rescuer than to be disillusioned about what it actually is. And for people that, that say, I don't know where to find the truth, your approach at Summit is don't, don't be close-minded to the belief that you know it, but be curious to try and find it. Be, seek, and you will find. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So the, the, Knock, and it will be Yeah, instant. what you're talking about, uh, Charlie came and spoke to our Summit Ministries. Very group. impressive young people. Uh, two weeks. You just take two weeks, and during the summertime, come together in Colorado or in, uh, in Manitou Springs, Colorado. It's this little hippie town right at the foot of Pikes Peak. Or in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, in those two locations, for two weeks, where you bring all of your questions with you. You meet with top Christian thought leaders. We bring in professors who love Jesus, who are smarter than the students' college professors. So when the students meet their college professors and the professor is an atheist, they're like, well, I just studied this summer with one of the top ten philosophers in the world, and he totally disagrees with you. I don't have to believe you. So when the students come into that program, we, we, I focus, I, just, I do four things, A, B, C, D, it's easier for me to remember. Answers. Bring your list of questions will help you find answers. It's okay to ask questions. Second B is biblical worldview. It's not just that we read the Bible for our own personal nourishment, it's that the Bible speaks to everything. C is the counterfeits. I was in a foreign country and a guy walked up to me and said, hey man, do you want to buy a real fake Rolex? It's like... Is it real or is it fake? You know, and I, I was all jet lagged. I just thought it was so funny. He didn't think it was funny at all. What he wanted, me to, what he wanted to do was sell me a watch that looked like a $20,000 watch that was a $100 watch, okay? It still told time, but it was a fake. It diminished the value of, of watchness, if that's even a thing. Very if judgy is a thing, watchness is a thing. Go. But, it, but if, you, if, you, if you look at the counterfeits, then all of a sudden your experience at camp changes, okay? Everybody's been to camp. Uh, you feel close to God. You think, how did I ever get away from him? And you resolve that you'll live differently, and then you go home, and it, the feelings fade because feelings go up and down. That's the way feelings are. But if you learn to see the world differently, then everything that you see begins to reinforce the truth. That's the idea of studying the counterfeits, Okay? And the final thing is dialogue. You gotta learn to talk to people you don't agree with. You just have to do it. You have to learn to have discussions with them in a way that makes sense to them, that where the two of you are not necessarily butting heads with one another, but walking side by side toward the truth. I'm telling you, if you have a young person, send them to Summit Ministries, it will bless them. And I, I'm a tough sell when it comes to programming for young people, as, as you can imagine. Let's line up for some questions here, guys. And please try to keep the question somewhat topical to the topic we're talking about. If you do get off the reservation, I will do my best to answer them. But, and make it a question, not a public service announcement for why you are running for uh, dog catcher or whatever. Yes, which I hope you are. Uh, 
it, um, if you are interested in the summit program for 16 to 22 year old students, you can find more information at summit.org slash charlie. How about that? Summit.org slash charlie. I think I have a landing. It kind of had a ring to it, so we went there with it. <laughs> but if you go there, uh, it'll also save you, I think, an, 100 or some uh, quite a bit of money off of the registration. Yeah, I mean, and I get asked by parents all the time, Charlie, I want to, my kids, they're slipping and they're this and that. I, I don't know what to do. You send them there. It is a, I don't know if you worded it this way, but it's a boot camp for biblical values. Is that fair to say? I think it is. And I think the students, when they come out, it's a force multiplier for yeah. truth because they go into the military, into science, yes. into medicine, all these different areas. Uh, but 4% of young adults today have a biblical worldview. By the time they leave Summit, 85% have a biblical worldview. Amazing. So it's, it's uh, fun to watch. We'll start here. Dr. Myers, Charlie, thank you very much for doing what you do. We all appreciate it very, very much. My name is Kevin. I'm from Cave Creek, and I have this question. When approached by a person who says, well, that may be your truth, it's not my truth, what would be your comeback to that statement? Okay, um, tell me your name again. My name is Kevin. Kevin. Uh, the first thing to do in that situation is to ask for a definition of the terms. When you use that word truth, I don't think it means what you think it means, okay? That's sort of what it's, it, but it is, it's just like that. What, what, when you use the word truth, what do you mean? Do you mean your perspective? Do you mean what actually exists? So you've got to understand what they mean when they use the term truth. I was on a very um, progressive podcast the other day, uh, and I knew their audience. I knew, you know, I knew all of that, and it's fine. But he said, well, you know, we all have our own truth. And I said, maybe, maybe you could word it this way. We all have a perspective based on our life experiences about how we see truth. The truth itself doesn't change, but we can see it differently based on our life experiences, or we can be deceiving ourselves from seeing the truth. The first thing you have to do is get a definition of the terms. The second thing is, so I, I always have these steps in my mind. You identify the truth, you identify the lies, you refute the lies, and then you help the other person learn to talk about and, and relate to and move closer to the truth. Okay, those are, so you're always thinking of those things. Say, uh, and then I would just start using examples. How far do you want to go with this? I mean, if I say that water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level, are you going to say to me, well, that's your opinion? How far are you going to go with it? Oh, no, I, I wouldn't say that, but, you know, maybe moral facts. Okay, fine. And I used the example on the show today. Um, I'm going to make two statements. Statement A, it is good to care for abandoned puppies. Statement B, it is good to torture abandoned puppies. Is there a difference between those two statements? 100% of the time, people have said, yes. Well, how do you know there's a difference? If we each have our own truth and we define words for ourselves, how do you know there is even a difference between those two things? And, and that's what Charlie was saying earlier. How, oh, how, what's the spiral in totalitarianism? You forget the idea that human beings are made in the image of God, then you lose the ability to understand words. And those two things always fit together. Like um, in Rwanda, the, two, uh, the, the Hutu attacked the Tutsis. They started by calling them cockroaches. 
Uh, Hitler taught his people to call the Jews vermin, right? Um, we teach people, I'm, I mean, might as well be blunt about it. People are taught to refer to an unborn child as a product of conception or fetal right. tissue. Right. You de the, what you want to destroy, you first of all dehumanize. That's what ends up happening. As Michael Bauman, who is a, one of our summit professors, passed away a couple of years ago, he would always say this, when words lose their meaning, people lose their lives. The, the second thing I would add, which is more about making an argument for the necessity for truth, which is less important than whether or not he believes he might have his own truth. What Dr. Myers just went through is brilliant because people might have their own opinions and experiences, but there's only one truth. An example I also use as a tangent is if there's a car crash, there might be five different memories. Well, he came from this way and that way, but eventually you're gonna get to the truth of what actually happened, right? You, act, you might have a memory recollection problem, someone might have a strong opinion that might be covering for a spouse, but eventually you're gonna get the footage of what really happened, and it doesn't matter what those five people's experiences or opinions about the matter. They might have a little bit of a sliver of the truth, but then you get the three definition, three, 3D footage, you're like, oh, I see, you blindsided him because you were texting on your phone, it doesn't matter what those other five yeah. people said. So that's just an interesting way. There's only one thing that actually happened when a car crash happened. But then finally, the necessity, yeah. okay? So back to the car crash example, if we operated a criminal justice system based on experience, opinions, you would never be able to get to justice, which is a revered word by the American left, right? So they always say, we want justice, we want justice. Well, if you relied solely on experience and opinion and not on truth, well then, footage of somebody murdering somebody wouldn't mean anything because it's his truth he didn't do it. And right. so there, the, the, if you have a society that does not have truth, then all of a sudden you can get into all sorts of different bad things. So then convincing the person you're talking to how important it is that we all agree at least on some form of truth, yeah. I think is, is somewhat persuasive to certain people. Uh, I, I've got to mention an example that kind of expands on this too. You just think about the differences. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll be like, wait a second, he said that what happened with Jesus in that situation was, a little, he said it a little bit differently than, than this other guy. And a lot of people have said to me, well, see, that proves that the gospels are not true. But it's actually the opposite. The fact that they're giving their testimony and all of it comes together to demonstrate something about who Jesus was is actually more powerful. J. Warner Wallace, I don't know if he's been here, Man, he would make a great guest for you sometime. He's a, an L.A. cold case detective. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's great. Yeah, L.A. cop. And uh, he said, if I had four witnesses to an event and they all told me the exact same story, I would know it was a setup. Because that doesn't ever happen. So uh, my wife, Stephanie, who was here with me tonight uh, from Colorado. Thank you, Stephanie, because that came out of a conversation we had just this afternoon. Awesome. Thank you. Caleb, how are you? Welcome from Minnesota. Good to see you. Um, so in relation to the truth and politics and the church, um, what would you say is the biblical definition of the kingdom of God? Who are its citizens? What is its function and purpose? Or in other words, what biblically is the good news or the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus and John the Baptist preached? And how does that relate to wow. politics and reality? <laughs> okay, huge question. 
And I, I, I'm a professor, so I like, I like the rabbit trails. Uh, so if I don't get to the answer of the question, ask it again. <laughs> you really want to read, you really want to read a book by a guy named Augustine called City of God Against the Pagans. It's not an easy book to read. There's a lot of stuff in there that's theological, and, you know, angelology and different things like that, which we don't, we don't think a lot about that sort of thing. But he, he understands the idea of the kingdom of God as being made up of people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, they have accepted, as scripture tells us, uh, acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Okay, that's salvation. And then those people together have a higher priority. So the way he phrased it, and this is a paraphrase of it, but those citizens of the kingdom of God will always be the best citizens in the kingdom of man because their allegiance is to something higher than man. An uncomfortable fact for secularists is if there's no such thing as truth, there is no way to know that what Adolf Hitler did was wrong. Why, it, why was it wrong? Because it was legal. He was the law by his standard. Everything he did by definition was legal inside the bounds of the territory that he controlled. And this went on. Even through the Nuremberg trials, American attorneys were debating back and forth. Is there an actual truth? And they finally concluded that, nope, there isn't really an actual truth. There's just consensus. And that's it. We have a consensus that this is the way we're going to see it. So in other words, if Hitler had won, then he would have been right? Yes. That's the uncomfortable thing that secularism can't really deal with. So the kingdom of God, made up of people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they don't worship the president. They don't worship the king. They don't worship any human authority. They worship God alone. And that's what makes them great citizens. Thank you, man. Hi there, my name is Abigail Van Wetten. I'm a first year at Grand Canyon University, and I'm going into English for secondary education. And my question for the both of you is, as a future educator going into field that is full of lies, especially pertaining to gender and identity, as a Christian and an educator in the instance of a child experienced gender dysphoria or something along the lines of the LGBTQ ideologies, how do I speak truth in a way that will be heard? Uh, thank you. And now we begin hours two and three of our time together uh, tonight. <clears throat> um, thank you so much for asking the question. It's on all of our minds and our hearts because we know people who have all kinds of confusions in their lives. And dysphoria is a real thing. There, I mean, there are people who have all kinds of body dysphoria, people who think that they're overweight, who are actually about to die of starvation. There are people who... Um, have huge muscles who think their muscles are too small and they take steroids and they're gonna, they're gonna destroy their heart. Uh, there, are all the, oh, there are all kinds of people who have dysphoria and, and one that is in the, so it's, sort, it's become a social media contagion is gender dysphoria. Uh, and, and there's a whole lot to be said about it. But how do you bring the truth in this situation? There's going to always be a sort of what, is the social, what does society need to do and then what do we need to do as individual persons. I'm of the mind that we just, we, we start with God made them male and female. 
And if you start with that realization, by the way, the, the, if you look at the Hebrew words there, it doesn't just mean male and female as in biology, although that's significant. I don't know if you realize this, but there are 6,500 biological differences between men and women. It's not just genitalia, okay? It is, in fact, almost every single cell in your body says male or female. And even when people talk about intersex, it's their, every single cell in their body still says male or female, okay? Even though there are all sorts of other medical issues that are going on there. So we start with that. Well, what does the Bible say about what it means to be masculine or feminine? And, the, and what society says is there's a spectrum. Extremely masculine over here, extremely feminine over here. Where are you on that spectrum? And the Bible's perspective is, no, there are two spectra. Is that the right word? Spectra. I think. Two spectra, because there are two. Anyway, somebody will write you about this. Uh, you have a male spectrum and a female spectrum. So on the male spectrum, you might have people who are very artistic or interested in art or something like that, that society might say, based on cultural stereotypes, well, then you're not really a man, you're a woman. Because, you know, you're, you're just born in the wrong body. But that would only be the case if this, if this thing exists, this, this one singular spectrum. But if there's a male spectrum and a female spectrum, then you might have very masculine males, you might have not so masculine. It doesn't, it, it's all, those are all stereotypes. What bugs me so much about uh, the transgender movement, well, a couple of things. First of all, children are being targeted. And that is evil. But the second thing is how in defiance of stereotypes it actually enshrines the stereotypes. Like you don't, see, you don't see drag queens who dress like women normally dress. You know, they're always, it's always an extreme, exaggerated kind of thing, enshrining the stereotypes. Uh, and, and, and that really, it, it demonstrates that when you lose any sense of what words mean and what reality actually is, there's no limit. Right now, uh, the, the medical societies are saying there's 68 different genders. Why would they say 68? Because if you take the parameters that are outlined, it's actually 3,000. In fact, if you just want to be honest about it, gender no longer has any meaning at all. Uh, so, but, the, but all of this comes back to the idea that gender and sex are two different things. Nobody ever proved that. It's a theory. It's out there in the culture. It's an assumption that a lot of people haven't questioned. So you go back, you start asking the question, what do you mean by sex? What do you mean by gender? How do you know that is true? If someone's experiencing the dysphoria, you can continue to walk alongside of them. They're, 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 they're in many ways a victim of what's happening around them in the culture. Now we have power, we have this, the ability to make decisions, we have a will, but um, the culture is so overpowering right now that they, they may feel totally confused and that confusion can be real and can be very painful. You continue to walk alongside. There are other things that government needs to do and maybe that's a discussion for another time. Yeah, and I would just add, I think the way we have to approach this is just reject the word gender. It's a made-up word. It might as well say horoscope. No, seriously. You know the root word of gender is actually genus. It's the word where we, from which we get our word genetics. 
So it actually doesn't mean the social definition that it has come to mean. The problem is nobody ever pointed this out. When did it all start happening? Um, I learned it first as a PhD student in 1992. This is not new. This has been going on for a long time. What's Uzbek, taught in the academy and Derrida, Marcuse, yeah. and Kinsey even before that. Right. And so, but look, what I would just say is, is gender is a made up word. And so we should reject it. It's your biological sex that matters, period. And but what they've done is they've introduced this new term gender into birth certificates where they say, well, gender is fluid and sex might be stable. And we just kind of accepted it. We didn't think very much of it. It's a completely irrelevant term, by the way. And so basically, gender is how you feel, and it's a question of the will, where we should just totally say it doesn't matter. What is your biological sex, period, end of story. And I mean, I have, let's just say, uh, you're so sweet. I think that this entire trans thing is one of the most evil things happening in our society. We cannot tolerate this evil. These people that are prescribing these chemical castration drugs should go to jail. I think it is so wrong what we are putting these kids through. And finally, I'll say this. If you have a mental illness, you should get treatment. But people that are suffering from the mental illness are, again, inherently tyrannical. It's not enough that they think that they are a zebra, a giraffe, a lion, or something that they're not. They want you to acknowledge that they are what they say they are. It's one thing if they were suffering in silence, and I hope that they get help with that. No, no, no. They want everyone else to agree in harmony, on demand, repetitionally, when they say it every single day, that their mental illness is then what everybody else thinks. That's what dictators do. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to, you've got to grapple with reality. Now, I will mention this, because we've got an ebook coming out on transgender, and it's, it's going to be... It's going to be a mess when it comes out because we're going to reveal some things, including the fact that the medical establishment has enshrined a particular treatment for gender dysphoria that requires medicalization. And this has happened. It didn't happen last year. It didn't happen during the pandemic. It happened 15 years ago. 15 years ago, the left had already decided this is how we're going to approach it. And... Um, it's going to be, it's a multi-billion dollar business right now. The pharmaceutical yeah. companies are pumping money into this. Oh, gosh. These doctors should be put in prison. I mean, it's very, I'll close with this, right? Because they say, well, they need medical treatment. Do you give liposuction to someone who's anorexic? No. No. Because that would be torture. And that's what we're doing to 10-year-olds all across the country because they think there's something they're not. You're giving liposuction to someone with anorexia, calling it medicine. Yeah, there are now hundreds of, of gender uh, clinics that will treat children, yep. and it was 42,000 children last year who were seen. Now, the, um, and remember, the standards of care are set up in such a way that medicalization is the natural result of the treatment process. So, so they will be given drugs if they continue the treatment, and they will be recommended for uh, mutilating surgeries if the treatment process continues as a natural course of the way doctors are supposed to do it according to the standard of care that we're operating from in the United States right now. We're, so, we're sorry, you tapped into a huge issue for, for us on a number of levels. I, I don't know if that was helpful at all. Yeah, so I mean, uh, your question was how do you navigate as an educator? Go, come work at Dream City Christian at Turning Point Academy and you won't have to worry about it. We're gonna go to eight, is that okay, Joe? Is that all right? I, I feel some good momentum here. All right, let's get to the next question. Speaking of Dream City Christian, Turning Point Academy. Hi. Um, it's nice to meet you both. 
I have a question. What you, should you do when you have a friend and he just, he doesn't want to talk about the Bible when I'd like to, and he just tries to push it away. And he walks around and at recess and he just, he's into like Greek mythology and stuff. And sometimes he looks suicidal. So I was wondering how I could like stop that when he gets older or how I could like comfort him or something. I love your heart. Thank you. Um, a, a couple of things, and, and this is hard in a forum like this, but if your friend says, I don't, says something like, I don't think it's worth going on, or so, uh, something to the effect where you realize, oh, th th these, are, these are thoughts about suicide, then you need to find a trusted adult to help you intervene in that situation, okay? You, you're not, that's not your job as a friend to, to be the one who intervenes, but you, it may be your job as a friend to help find somebody who can help, okay? So just, just do be aware of that. Now, how do you get some, uh, this, is, this is interesting. Uh, one of the things you see the authors of the Bible do is they start with where people are. And you mentioned Greek mythology, which I think is fascinating because I want you to go home and I want you to read in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts is the next book. Read chapter 17. The Apostle Paul goes to a place called Athens, this place called Mars Hill, right next to the Parthenon. You can see the Parthenon from Mars Hill. And he says, there is an unknown God down there in the marketplace, and that's the God I'm going to proclaim to you. He started with the culture of what the people already thought about and used that as a platform from which to teach the gospel. So uh, maybe you ask questions like, oh, wow, so you're interested in mythology. What is it that interests you about that? You know, is it, does it kind of ring true to you that, I mean, that there, maybe there is an epic battle and we're all part of it and we think that our standing for truth could actually make a difference? you ever feel that or think that? In other words, you can just kind of use that interest. And you can also ask questions like, do you ever think about, you know, should we really try to make a difference? Should our lives be used to make a difference for other people? Um, if there ever was a situation where we had to stand for the truth, what would you do? Um, do you think it's worth risking your life for what you really believe? The, the, you know, there are all kinds of questions that you can ask that will help him start to think, yeah, maybe there, there is something bigger. There's something more important than just my everyday experiences. And the reason I could recommend that to you is because that... What I just described to you is almost exactly how J.R.R. Tolkien led C.S. Lewis to faith in Christ. Thank you, man. All right. Um, my question is, why do you think the world goes off of logistic and scientific facts, yet the Bible speaks the truth and it's still so rejected? I didn't quite get so the. The, you reread the first part, sorry. Um, why do you think the world goes off of logistic and scientific facts, yet the Bible speaks the truth, and it's still so rejected? Yeah, okay. Awesome question. Um, 
in, in the book, True Changes Everything, I had a whole chapter on science. It could be my very favorite chapter because here's the bottom line. Science did not rise in rebellion against God. It rose to applaud him. It's still, John Lennox, who was a retired professor of mathematics at Oxford University, said that two-thirds of the people who've ever won the Nobel Prize in science listed Christian as their affiliation. Okay, that's not just old times. That's now he's, he's talking about. What's going on? All right, here's, this is at the heart of your question. If you reject the biblical assumption that the world is, was created then we don't know that the world exists in a stable fashion, do we? If you do an experiment at time A, you do an experiment at time B, you might actually be experimenting in a different world. Um, we, so, so, in fact, there, in the book, I list seven different assumptions about the world that are rooted in a biblical worldview that have to be assumed by scientists in order to even do their work. Okay, but keep in mind also this. Science is a way of knowing. It is not the only way of knowing. At Summit Ministries, we look at 10 areas, theology, philosophy, ethics, biology, psychology, sociology, law, politics, economics, and history. All of those have different ways of knowing things. The scientific way of knowing is not infallible. Okay? We need to be really clear about this. Scientists, science is in many ways the pursuit of failure for the sake of knowledge. Um, only 11% of cancer clinical drug studies were able to, in one study that I looked at, were able to be replicated. Like only 11%. 90, so that people said, this drug is going to be a miracle cure. 90% of the time they were wrong. And nobody could replicate the results. Right. So, it, so all sorts of things come into it. Science is important. It is a, a good way of knowing, and it's possible because there actually is a God who's created. I, I have a quick add-on. If you take most college kids and just line them up and you ask them to prove something and you say, oh, by the way, you're not allowed to say studies show. <laughs> they will not be able to tell you anything. Yeah. No, seriously, because their entire education system has been isolated to the only way of knowing is through science. They do not believe that there is any knowledge that is outside of science. They don't. And every, and including many Christian schools do this. They do not believe in eternal knowledge, wisdom, teleological knowledge, epistemological knowledge, any of that. Any, and then we'll get to one more question. Do you want to add on to that? Or? No, I, th I think that's perfect. I, it, just keep in mind, one of the cool things about a Christian worldview is there are so many ways you can think about the world. And, and we, nobody's ever really believed that science was the only way. Like, if you see a bird in flight, you think, you know, I'm not really sure I understand what makes that so graceful. I'm going to shoot it down, take it apart, put it on a pegboard, and label it. Yes. And then I will know the answer. No, there's something about the the brings up poetry, that you would want to understand something about the grace and the beauty of something that doesn't uh, avail itself of a reductionist approach. There's more to life than just cause and effect. Okay. Last, the you last question, because we're over we're time. Like, we're sorry. like, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Thank you and for taking this. Yeah, question. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, this question is for Charlie. Uh, my name is Colleen Henry. I'm a physician assistant. I was working in an internal medicine practice in Massachusetts during the pandemic, and we see a lot of hospital follow-ups, a lot of adverse uh, effects from the vaccine, and I, I didn't want to get the vaccine, so staying in my truth and um, having other people also kind of rally around that, we've been able to get a lawsuit together, um, which is one of the few in the, thank you. <laughs> Definitely challenging, but um, we are, you know, we're out there now with our names and our case and whatnot. Um, now we're just trying to figure out how to go about finding an expert testimony. And I've tried to reach out to all of the, you know, big name people out there, epidemiologists, vaccinologists, and just wondering if you have any advice on that. Um, we hope to set some new case law. Well, praise God for your courage and your willingness to fight. I'd love to talk to you after I could connect you with Dr. Malone and Dr. McCullough and these amazing doctors that have done this research on all of this. And I mean, you guys know my opinion on this. We've been talking about it for a while. And what is done in darkness will come to light. And I don't know if you saw the recent Pfizer video that showed the Pfizer employees say that they are doing, what's the new term they use? It's not gain of function, it is, um, it's something really sinister. What is it? Yeah, the fact that so many people know it, you have to understand how much hope that gives me? The fact that 10 people just blurted it out, that's why we're gonna win, everybody. The fact that at a, an event I ask and 10 people know it, that's a really good sign. That means you guys are on your toes and you're active and you're being citizens. Look, you gotta keep that going, though, it is. And I, I remain really, upset, I'll be, I, I, there's another word for it, but I'm not going to use it, of how many people's lives were put into jeopardy, careers ruined, people had to leave, incomes that were put into suspension, people kicked out of the military for an mRNA shot that didn't even do what they said it did, and obviously did a lot even more than that. I ask the question all the time, and people answer overwhelmingly, do you know someone that had an adverse event or died after taking the vaccine? Hands go up all the time, and people say... I, raise your hand, by the way, if you know someone that had an adverse event. Yeah, by the way, so they call every, they say that it did not happen. There's not one. Every hand goes up here, right? Yeah. Someone's probably lying and people need to go to jail. Yeah. I, I think you, you probably will also, as you're going through this, you'll probably have some believers say, why are you picking a fight? Christians aren't supposed to pick fights. And I just want you to know that our justice system exists for this purpose. Exercising our freedom is part of what allows us to remain free. And so I, I would just, and I would also encourage you, and, and of course, it, did you, you probably figured out that I think everything comes back to the Bible. Like, the, the idea of tort law, negligence law, actually goes back to the book of Exodus. And the guy who invented that field of law said so. He said that loving, that he said, resolving those wrongs is loving your neighbor put into law. So I, it's going to be a hard road. There's going to be a lot of work to be done. Uh, you're going to experience a lot of attacks. But thank you for sharing about your work. 
So, Dr. Myers, any closing thoughts? I, I do. If, if what we're talking about tonight is interesting to you and you'd like to see a copy of the book if you're here in person, then if you go right out this exit over here, I'll be there. I'll be there to sign books. There are one book for $15 or two books for $20. The economics worked out that way. Um, because I want you to share the truth with a friend. That's the whole point. So I'll be out there to talk with you. If you're interested, the Summit Ministries program for a young adult, we're signing people up for this coming summer right now. I love it. And that is a program that can change lives, 16 to 22-year-olds, and you can find the discount code at summit.org slash charlie. In the first line of Shakespeare's play on Julius Caesar, he says, beware the Ides of March. I want you to plan on being here on the Ides of March because literally March 15th, we have Dennis Prager coming for Freedom Night in America. And so if that reference doesn't mean anything to you, sorry, but you won't forget it now. When is the next one? The Ides of March, okay? March 15th, Dennis Prager will be here. It is gonna be amazing. Bring a friend. He's entertaining, he's provocative, he's deep, he's thoughtful. Dennis Prager, who has, I think, written one of the great Bible commentaries of all time, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I think Numbers is just coming, no, Deuteronomy is just coming out. Leviticus and number have, Numbers have not. And come, here's your challenge. Come with the hardest Old Testament questions you can. No, seriously. Dennis, what about this in Leviticus? How could God, pot he has heard it all and he has very thoughtful answers on it. So that's your homework. You're gonna bring a friend and you're gonna come with the hardest, most challenging Old Testament question that you can come up with and you're gonna ask Dennis Prager about it on the Ides of March. Buy Dr. Meyer's book and please join me in thanking him for being here tonight. God bless you guys and he'll see you out there.